Hey everybody and welcome to Breaking Biotech. Thanks for being with me here today. My name is Matt and if you like the show you can help out by clicking the like or subscribe button. You can also donate using the Patreon link in the description below. And with Patreon there's a variety of different tiers. My personal favorite though is the $3 tier because it gives you access to the Discord channel. And we've got a good little community going of people who are interested in biotech so it makes it easy for us to talk in real time and bat different biotech ideas around. So. Check that out if you're interested, and thanks to everybody who's donated and everybody who's subscribing and engaging on Twitter and sending me emails. It's, uh, it's great to get different perspectives, so please keep it up. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can do so at Matthew Lepore, and you can send me an email at MatthewLepore at gmail.com. So on today's show, what I want to talk about is the CD47 space. It's been uh, very exciting, and it's actually expanded significantly. I didn't quite know how many companies were actually out there until I started doing this research. So today I'm going to limit the talk to talking about Trillium and ALX Oncology, and we're also going to touch on 47. They're a company that kind of trailblazed this whole space. They recently were acquired by Gilead, so it's exciting. And with that, let's just get right into it. And the first thing I want to talk about is the addressable market that we're talking about. In the last video I did, I talked about this briefly, but just to expand a little bit, the total global market in 2018 for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is around $12 billion, and this compares to solid tumors, which is $121 billion. So we need to think that as companies start to try and get indications in solid tumors, their valuation is going to expand significantly because of the potential revenue that could be garnered from their molecules. If we restrict this to just the USA, in general, the market share is around 45% of the total world. So the non-Hodgkin's lymphoma space would be $5.3 billion. Compare that to the solid tumor space at $55 billion, and that's the USA specifically. And I think it's important to look at this because companies often will start in the USA and then expand into other countries because usually the FDA sets kind of the higher bar. So if you can get through the FDA sometimes, so this isn't always the case, but you can get uh, approval a little bit easier in other countries. So keep this in mind when we're talking about these companies and the market caps because the potential in solid tumors is significant and a company like Trillium that's starting out in non-Hodgkin's lymphoma but are going to look towards solid tumors, we should expect that as those trials keep going and as we see data, their valuation is going to increase significantly. And I think this might be why a company like ALXO is seeing a little bit of a more generous valuation. So I'm talking about this because we need to contextualize the market caps of these companies, and I'm going to talk about those shortly. Now, for today's uh, scientific background, we need to understand a little bit more about the molecule CD47. And to touch on that, it is a transmembrane protein. It's expressed on a wide variety of cells in the human body. There are multiple different ligands for it. CD47 acts as a receptor for the protein TSP1, integrin alpha V beta 3, as well as the most important for our talk today, which is SIRP-alpha. And this protein is expressed on macrophages. And the significance of this SIRP-alpha-CD47 relationship is that CD47 is expressed at baseline levels on all sorts of different cell types, including red blood cells. And what this signals to the macrophage is that it's a self-protein. So when we talk about immunology, self versus non-self is able to distinguish between cells that are to be protected and not attacked versus foreign or non-self, which are to be attacked and destroyed and removed from the body. So the way that this works generally is that if macrophages detect CD47 on the cell, they use the protein SIRP-alpha to interact with that CD47 
and then it will stop the macrophage from either performing phagocytosis or cytotoxicity. And these are two different mechanisms that generally try to achieve the same thing, which is to destroy the non-self bacteria, virus, even it'll do this for dead cells, it'll do this for all sorts of different things. But this is a highly conserved mechanism whereby the innate immune system can protect the body. And in cancer specifically, it's important because tumor cells will overexpress CD47 to ensure that macrophages cannot detect them as foreign or deleterious cells, and therefore avoid getting phagocytosed or destroyed through cytotoxicity. So the hypothesis that all these companies are posing is if we can block CD47 on tumor cells, can we then allow the innate host immune system to attack those cells as if they are foreign or non-self and use their mechanisms that are normally employed like phagocytosis or cytotoxicity to then restore kind of a normal innate immune system so that cancer can be removed. So just to highlight this in a little bit clearer detail with a picture that I found on the internet, you've got the tumor cell up here expressing CD47 and normally through SIRP alpha binding, this will stop any sort of phagocytosis or cytotoxicity from the macrophage. We hypothesize that blocking CD47 through a CD47 antibody or a decoy SIRP alpha protein, we allow the macrophage to proceed with phagocytosis or cytotoxicity. And the level at which the cytotoxicity or phagocytosis is gonna happen kind of depends on a number of different things. Some companies have attached an FC portion to their molecule to promote that phagocytosis or cytotoxicity, and other companies have put an inert FC portion, and then they emphasize that they need a combination therapy to promote that ADCC or ADCP. So they're two kind of different mechanisms to get the same result. All right, so here is a number of different companies, and I took this slide from the Trillium corporate presentation, and I like it because it does a lot of work for us, and I'm gonna to touch on all of these different things. So the two main companies I'm gonna talk about are Trillium Therapeutics, and they have two molecules, TTI-621 and TTI-622. They both are a fusion protein of SIRP-alpha, and they're fused to an FC isotype that is either IgG1 in the case of 621 or IgG4 in the case of 622. The difference in IgG really just has an effect on how much phagocytosis or cytotoxicity promotion is gonna be encouraged on the macrophage side. So leaving that aside for a second, ALX148, on the other hand, is a high affinity SIRP fusion protein as well, and it also has an IgG1, but it's an inert IgG1. So rather than promoting phagocytosis, it's really just going to stop the don't eat me signal. So ALX in this way has a protein that blocks that do not eat signal, but doesn't necessarily promote the phagocytosis or cytotoxicity. So that's a very important distinction that we have to make, and it's really gonna frame our entire conversation for the rest of the video. I also want to touch on Gilead's drug, Magrolimab, which was previously from a company called 47, and they were acquired in Q1 of 2020 for $4.9 billion. So Gilead now has this molecule called Magrolimab, and it's a CD47 monoclonal antibody that's FC isotype is IgG4. So Magrolimab is very similar to TTI622 in this way in that it blocks the don't eat me signal and also promotes the macrophage phagocytosis 
slash cytotoxicity. So that is the key distinction here. And when it comes to looking at whether the molecule is better or worse, it really comes down to a lot of these specifics. So the first thing I want to talk about is the size of the molecular weight. And the reason for this is that in solid tumors, one of the problems with antibody treatments is that if the antibody is too big, oftentimes it won't be able to penetrate the tumor enough to bind to all of the molecules on each one of the cells, which people think is kind of necessary in order to get full activity. So what we want here is kind of a smaller molecule. And I know there's a lot of caveats here because clearance goes up when you get a smaller antibody molecule, but suffice to say that Trillium's molecules as well as ALX's molecule are the same size. So they're half the size of magrolimab, so they should get more solid tumor penetration, even though they're going to need higher dosing in order to overcome the clearance issue. And we're still early when it comes to solid tumors, but it's important to note that if one molecule was smaller than the other, you might get different effects in solid tumors. But TTI 621, 622, as well as ALX 148 are all the same size. The next thing we need to look at is binding affinity. And specifically the next row here, we talk about RBC binding. And Trillium likes to tout their molecules as not having red blood cell binding, and that's not entirely true. It is true though that the binding affinity for 621 and 622 is lower than its affinity for tumor cell binding, but it's only different by maybe an order of magnitude or two. So to get in this a little bit deeper, the normal binding affinity between CD47 and SIRP alpha is about one micromolar. So if there is a binding that is lower than that, it's gonna be a stronger interaction. And if it's higher than one micromolar, it's gonna be a weaker interaction. Just as a, as a broad way, you can do a lot more reading on dissociation constants, all sorts of stuff to really understand the biochemistry. But for our purposes, just take my word for it. So Trillium's molecules, the SIRP alpha, preferentially binds to what's called a mobile CD47, and that's only expressed on tumor cells. Red blood cells don't express a mobile version of CD47, and in this way, Trillium's molecules preferentially bind to CD47 expressed on tumor cells and not red blood cells. But when you look a little bit deeper, the binding affinity is only difference by about an order of magnitude or two. So we see here that TTI621 and CD47 on red blood cells, the affinity ranges from 500 nanomolar to one micromolar or 1000 nanomolar. CD47 on the tumor though, the binding affinity goes down to 10 nanomolar to 1000 nanomolar. So there's a lot of range here and I'm just gonna blow up this one figure that I pulled from the paper which illustrates it really well. So we can see here that on average, the red blood cell binding is 1000 nanomolar and then when we look at all the other different cell types, the primary liquid tumor as well as the human solid lines, we see that the affinity is a little bit stronger for CD47 on those cells compared to red blood cells. But it's not nothing. So as the dose increases, we're more likely to see some red blood cell binding, even though the fact that there's this discrepancy or discrimination in binding is going to be able to allow TTI621 to be dosed higher without getting side effects. So that's kind of Trillium's mechanism to avoid the problems associated with uh, binding to CD47 that's on healthy cells. And the reason that they've been paying attention to this is that one of the big issues with magrolimab is it binds to CD47 indiscriminately. And for that reason, they see a lot of side effects related to anemia and neutropenia. 
So what the next generation companies did is they found these convenient ways to avoid that if they could. So what ALX Oncology has done with their molecule ALX148, rather than bind to CD47 discriminately, it doesn't do that. It binds to all CD47s. So the molecule is going to bind to red blood cells, but because it has an inert IgG, it's not actually going to promote macrophage phagocytosis. So in this way, the red blood cells will still bind to the antibody, but they'll still be able to circulate and be functional in the body. Now, one of the negative effects of this is that what red blood cells can act as is what's called an antigen sink. And the reason for this is that all of the molecules of antibody that are put in the body, they're going to bind to red blood cells, and those red blood cells are going to draw the antibody away from the tumor. So what the game is really is that ALX148 is going to have to be dosed high enough to overcome the issue of red blood cell binding of the antibody. Now, it's not going to cause anemia, but it could act as this antigen sink. Thus, you know, the game is to see whether or not efficacy can still be there despite the high number of red blood cells that can suck up the antibody in the blood. So then, the next thing we got to talk about is whether or not there is monotherapy efficacy. And what Trillium emphasizes in their presentation is that, in fact, Trillium's 621 and 622 both have monotherapy efficacy, whereas ALX148 does not, but megrolimab does. So when it comes to how we should consider this, I got to say Trillium does stand apart from ALX148 because they can definitively say that their molecule alone is responsible for this efficacy that they see. And I'm going to talk about that in more detail later. But the issue that ALX148 has is that given they're only looking at combination therapies, they are not necessarily able to say definitively that it's their molecule that's causing complete response or the partial response in their trials because they're not at the stage yet of doing a head-to-head -head trial. Now that's going to come, and I do think that their mechanism is sound, but we need to keep that in mind when we're looking at the data. So that's kind of a broad overview of the comparison between these different molecules. And now I want to touch a little bit on the stocks and where the companies are looking right now in terms of financials. So. Like I said, I'm focusing on Trillium and ALX Oncology. There's too many other companies to kind of touch on within the scope of this video, but to get into the details of these companies, Trillium, which ticker symbol is TRIL, trading at around $12 per share, which gives them a market cap of around $1.2 billion. ALX Oncology, ticker symbol ALXO, is trading at around $83 per share, giving them a market cap of $3.1 billion. So just from the outset, we see that ALXO is valued at double the price of Trillium. And part of me thinks that it's due to the fact that ALXO is really started in solid tumors, whereas Trillium is kind of focused on non-Hodgkin lymphoma. When it comes to their quarterly loss, Trillium in Q3 of 2020 posted a $6.5 million loss, whereas ALXO posted $10.2 million. In terms of their current assets, at Q3 of 2020, Trillium had $292 million, and ALXO had $262, plus an offering that they did just recently for another $208 million. In terms of their liabilities, both companies are around the same, Trillium at $13 million and ALXO at $7 million. Now, in terms of the strategies, Trillium has started with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and they're starting with monotherapies. Now, they've mentioned that they're going to be doing solid tumors in 2021, as well as combinations, but we've yet to actually see the details for that. And they mentioned that they're going to do an R&D day at the end of Q1 to get into those details. 
ALXO, on the other hand, has started with combinations, and they've said from the outset that monotherapy is not their goal. Combinations have really been the focus, and it makes sense with the mechanism of action of ALX148. So they're starting with solid tumors, and the specific ones are gastric cancer, head and neck squamous cell carcinoma, and they're going to be doing breast cancer pretty soon. They're also looking at non-Hodgkin lymphoma, AML, as well as MDS. So as we move forward, we kind of have to square these two circles in our head with regards to the monotherapy efficacy and the combinations. So both companies do talk about combinations being an important part of their roadmap, but Trillium did have that head start with monotherapy just to show that, in fact, it is their molecule that's able to get these responses, whereas ALXO is completely going past that and going right to combinations. Now, when it comes to combinations, we're pretty early in development. Trillium hasn't even started on these, and ALXO does not really have a head-to-head -head comparison right now. So we kind of have to look at their theoretical potential right now, rather than say definitively whether one works or one doesn't. But to kind of lay this out a little bit, Trillium argues that they're going to be able to get more efficacy with their molecules because the IgG1 and IgG4 on 621 and 622, they say it's going to be able to magnify the ADCC or ADCP response when a molecule like rituximab is treated. Now to frame this a little bit, one of the mechanisms of action of rituximab is ADCC or ADCP. So what most of these companies argue is that their molecule is going to enhance the ADCC driven by rituximab by being able to stop the don't eat me signal of macrophages. Now Trill argues that the pro-phagocytotic FC isotype on their molecules is going to just add to that leading to more effectiveness. Now what ALXO is going to argue is that Trillium's molecules are more likely to cause toxicity because that phagocytosis is going to occur on normal cells including red blood cells. So what ALXO says for their molecule, they say that they're better because their molecules lower hematologic toxicity since they don't have an IgG1 or IgG4 isotype stopping the don't eat me signal but allowing molecules like rituximab to promote ADCC and ADCP. So it's an important distinction to make there, even though it could be a little bit confusing. So ALXO argues that this can allow for higher dosing with not as many side effects as, say, Trillium's molecules. Now just to touch on this a little bit deeper, I'm blowing up one of the important figures that ALXO focused on their corporate presentation. And what they're showing here is a bunch of experiments where they mixed cetuximab with a different anti-CD47 molecule and they looked at the amount of phagocytosis that occurs. And what they're showing is that with ALX148 you get the most phagocytosis, with magrolimab you get a medium level, and with TTI621 you actually get decreased phagocytosis compared to the monotherapy molecule alone. And I find this data very interesting and not very convincing. First of all, we don't really know much of the background, the important information, like what cells were used, um, what macrophages were used, what the readout was. They say GFP positive, but I'd like to see really more details with regards to that. Um, the second thing is I find it difficult to understand how adding TTI621 to cetuximab would actually have a negative effect on ADCC rather than even a baseline effect. It makes sense to me that these molecules would have a synergistic effect on top of cetuximab because cetuximab, to talk about that more, it's an anti-EGFR molecule, 
but it also has an IgG1 FC isotype, so it alone would promote phagocytosis. So they're saying that cetuximab plus TTI621 interacts in a way to give less ADCC. So I'm not really sure what to make of this data. I think it's interesting that they put it out there, and it's really just a drive-by against Trillium, even though I don't think they necessarily need to be antagonistic towards Trillium, but I'm really not convinced that this is true, and we haven't really seen any independent research to suggest that this is true. So I'm taking this with a grain of salt, even though it's in the back of my head. Some evidence that does exist against this is data that was provided by Trillium, so keep in mind it might be biased, but this is with TTI622, and what they did in a head and neck squamous cell carcinoma xenograft model, they treated in combination with cetuximab to show that the tumor volume, the tumor increases when they put it in a mouse, was delayed significantly more in kind of a synergistic way when it was cetuximab plus TTI622 rather than the monotherapy alone. And you can see this here, the green line is the combination therapy that was much higher than cetuximab and even more higher than TTI622 or vehicle. So in this way, I would assume that there is more antibody-dependent cell-mediated cytotoxicity if there was a synergistic effect between the two. So I'm not super convinced that the data that ALXO is showing is necessarily the truth, but it remains to be seen, and we still don't have that data in clinical models yet. So to go over the next part, I wanted to talk about red blood cell binding. And I'm not going to go over this in too much detail because I did kind of go over it, but the concern is really twofold with red blood cells. One is that they can act as an antigen sink, and the second one is that it could be anemic if the red blood cells are phagocytosed. So the first problem is going to be a problem more so for ALXO, and the second problem is going to be more of a problem for Trillium. And the data that supports that is here. So TTI621 and 622, we're seeing here that they bind to red blood cells significantly less than magrolimab as well as a bunch of other antibodies that bind to CD47. But you gotta keep in mind that it's not no red blood cell binding. So there is some red blood cell binding from these two molecules, it's just to a lower degree than the antibody would bind to tumor cells because of that difference in the CD47 affinity. For ALX148, I found this figure here, and if you look on the right for the inactive FC, we see here that the red blood cell number does not change in the model when they're treated with ALX148. So this doesn't mean that ALX148 isn't covering all of these red blood cells, because presumably that is happening, but they're not being phagocytosed, which is an important thing when it comes to side effects like anemia. The thing is, though, when it comes to acting as an antigen sink, these red blood cells could be taking away that antibody away from the tumor. I'm gonna leave it at that. I think I explained the red blood cell issue enough, but that is basically what we're looking at here. Okay, so let's get to some of the efficacy. And when it comes to efficacy, we gotta keep in mind that Trillium right now only has monotherapy efficacy, and they haven't looked in solid tumors yet. ALX148, on the other hand, is in solid tumors and is in combination therapies. So there's benefits and negatives to both of these. Trillium is able to show a 17 to 29% objective response rate in lymphomas for TTI621 and a 35% objective response rate in TTI622. ALX148 has a 0% ORR as a monotherapy in solid tumors, whereas magrolimab has a 10% ORR in AML and MDS and a 5% ORR in solid tumors and lymphomas. Trillium, I don't think, is going to be trying to get approval of TTI621 and 622 in a monotherapy 
The only benefit of showing this in a monotherapy is to convince us that there is efficacy of their molecule. ALX148 cannot say that definitively in a combination therapy until they do a head-to-head -head study. So at this point, where we're kind of diverging is that Trillium is going to need to continue to collect data in combinations, whereas ALX148 still has to do the combinations as well as the head-to-head -to, -head to tell us definitively that ALX148 does have that efficacy. So let's get to the effectiveness in non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And I think as a baseline, it's important to look at the base case, which really is, in my opinion, megrolimab in combination with rituximab. And what they saw here is that in all NHL patients, they saw 47% objective response rate. 35% was in aggressive NHL, and this is DLBCL, and 70% objective response rate was seen in follicular lymphoma, which is an indolent version of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So keep that in mind. And as we look towards ALXO and Trillium, for ALXO, and again, this is a combination therapy, they saw an objective response rate in their highest treatment dose of 70% overall, and this was broken down into 50% ORR for aggressive non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and 100% for indolent non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And now it's only an N of 10 right now, but this is still pretty convincing to say that there is a nice response from the combination of ALX148 and rituximab. And these are in patients that had a prior regimen with rituximab. So presumably what ALXO is going to argue is that since they've already seen rituximab, the rituximab in this treatment isn't the one that's having the effect here on these patients that are relapsed and refractory. Now, we can't say that with 100% certainty that that's true, but it's likely to be the case. Now, when it comes to Trillium, we can actually definitively say that it is TTI-621 that's having the effect here, or 622. So when it comes to 621, their effectiveness is ranges from 17% to 29%, depending on the non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and they did both indolent and aggressive. For TTI-622, they saw an objective response rate in evaluable patients of I've got here 27%, but I think in the previous slide it was 35%, and it just depends on what your denominator is in terms of the objective response rate. But suffice to say that it's a nice response as a monotherapy in relapsed or refractory patients. So I don't want to beat a dead horse, but that's really the difficult part about this, is that one is a combination therapy and one is a monotherapy. So we're kind of left with really wanting to see more data, but... To me, I am more satisfied with Trillium's data because we can say definitively that there is a response due to their molecule. I think ALXO has a little bit more work ahead of it for us to convincingly say that it's due to ALX148. Now, let's get to safety. And safety is particularly interesting because of all of the things I talked about before. And the base case, of course, is Magrolimab. And what we're looking at here is data in their solid tumor study and what we can see here in general is a significant amount of anemia there's a lot of headache fatigue chills there's also hemagglutination as well as lymphopenia when it comes to the higher grade incidence we saw a lot of anemia as well as lymphopenia but just to highlight the fact that it's relatively common in these anti-cd47 agents to have blood related toxicities to an extent we also saw an update from Gilead at ASH 2020 where they looked at the effect of magrolimab in AML. And what we saw here is that treatment-related adverse events with over 15% incidence include anemia, fatigue, 
IRRs, which are injection-related responses, neutropenias, and cytopenias. So it's common that this is going to happen. And really, if we can do like this or better, I think it's still kind of an approvable therapy. So with that, let's talk about ALX148. And the first thing I want to look at is, let's start with the combination therapy on the right. So these are treatment-related adverse events. And the high ones that are kind of a total number are rash at 24.2%, and then everything else was around 10% or lower. And the ones that were grade 3 or higher, there was one anemia, which was 3% of the population, and two that were neutropenia, or 6.1% of the population. So those are a little bit more severe, but overall this looks pretty good. Significantly better than magrolimab, and definitely approvable. And just to keep in mind the dose here, so this would be ALX148 at either 10 or 15 mg per keg weekly, plus rituximab. Now, another thing that they say on their corporate presentation is that in preclinical models, they went up to a dose of 100 mg per keg with no observable adverse events. They also say that in single agent, they went to 30 mg per keg once bi-weekly, and there was no evidence of dose-dependent cytopenias. And then they also say that they're planning to do a 60 mg per keg once monthly dose. So I want to focus your attention, though, on this comment here where they say no evidence of dose-dependent cytopenias, which is kind of a convenient statement to make given what the data actually is. And I also put here that they're very hush-hush about the monotherapy safety signals because they had data in monotherapy and there were actually some serious dose-limiting toxicities. So I want to share that with you now. And so in this Table 4A, and I'll put a link to this poster in the description so you can look at it yourself to get more of an idea, but in Table 4A, they outline the treatment-related adverse events in two or more patients, and it makes sense, thrombocytopenia, uh, rash, pruritus, etc. And then in 4B, they go with the adverse events that were grade 3 or higher in any patient. And what we see here are three dose-limiting toxicities as well as one death. At 30 mg per kg dose, once bi-weekly, there was one unexplained death in non-small cell lung carcinoma, and they also had one thrombocytopenia with significant bleed. They do not explain this at all in their corporate presentation, but this data is in fact out there. And now, one thing we can say is that, oh, it's at 30 mg per kg, which is kind of double the dose they're going with in the combination. And that might be true, but then if you keep going, at 3 mg per kg in a monotherapy, they saw one grade 3 neutropenia with an infection, and then at 10 mg per kg plus pembrolizumab, so this is one of their combination therapies, they saw one autoimmune hemolytic anemia, which was a dose-limiting toxicity. So, you know, it's nice that they have this lovely data to show in combination with rituximab, but they should really, to be totally transparent, have shown this other data that does in fact exist, saying that there are some safety signals. And I think the reason why this is so important to me is that one of ALX148's pitches is that they're able to overcome some of the safety issues that Trillium and Magrolimab are going to have because they don't promote that phagocytosis that macrophages are going to see when patients are treated with Trillium's molecules or Magrolimab. So ALX is trying to tout themselves as being the safer drug when in fact there are these serious dose-limiting toxicities that they really tried to sugarcoat in their corporate presentation. So keep that in mind, and I'm going to talk a little bit later of what I'm going to look forward to, because they are planning a 60 mg per kg once monthly dose, and I think if there are safety issues to be mindful of, it might come out in that trial. 
So, moving on to Trillium, and I don't mean to say that Trillium has a lovely safety profile, because they are starting to see dose-limiting toxicities. Since they're doing this uh, dose escalation trial to find the maximum tolerated dose to move into phase two with. So for TTI621, there were two dose limiting toxicities observed, one grade three infusion related reaction, and this was mitigated by extending the infusion time. So that one was managed. And then they also saw a grade four thrombocytopenia at two mg per kg. And just to show all of the adverse events here, we can see that the normal ones come up, injection-related responses, thrombocytopenia, chills, etc. But in general, these are all manageable, and I'd say a little bit better than megrolimab. For 622, there was one dose-related report to date, one grade 4 thrombocytopenia at 8 mg per kg, and this required a platelet transfusion, which we don't love to see, but it was resolved, which is a nice thing. And in general, here's the data, I'm just blowing it up now. It's generally similar, thrombocytopenia, nausea, but generally these are all manageable side effects, I would say. So that's safety, and I now wanna to move to ALXO's solid tumor efficacy. So one thing that I think the market is reflecting is that ALXO is kinda of deep into solid tumors at this point. Trillium, on the other hand, has not started to do combination therapies or solid tumors. So given the fact that there's such a huge market potential for solid tumors, I think the market is looking at ALXO as if they're closer to getting approval than Trillium, and for that reason, I think they're being given a more generous market cap. So let's talk about the efficacy that ALXO has seen so far, and these are all phase 1b trials. They're looking so far at gastric cancer and head and neck squamous cell carcinoma. In gastric cancer, it's second line or higher, and it's HER2 positive cancers. So the trials that they're doing right now are single arm, and in ALX plus Herceptin, they've seen a 21.1% objective response rate, that's four out of 19 patients. And then in ALX148 plus Herceptin, Paclitaxel and Syramza, which is a VEGF mediator, they saw an objective response rate of 64.3%, which is nine out of 14 patients. And I listened to the call that they had with Jeffries, Michael Yee, and uh, it was funny, the, the lady was very excited about this data. And you know, it's good. A lot of patients are seeing a benefit from this combination. But if you do kind of a simple Google looking at different combination therapies in gastric cancer, even in similar lines, you see that in second line or higher, Herceptin and Paclitaxel alone gives a 21.4% objective response. And then I found in first line, a, a big like combination therapy of Herceptin, Docetaxel, Bevacizumab, which is a VEGF mediator, as well as Capacitabine and Oxaliplatin, so another kind of generic chemotherapy. And this combination gave an objective response of 74%. So, you know, the fact that it's a single arm trial makes it very difficult for us to compare what really ALX148 is contributing in these trials. Because the combination of, say, Herceptin plus Syramza is going to be similar to Herceptin and Bevacizumab. But because there's also Paclitaxel and ALX148, it just muddies the water. And I actually think, I have a theory that a lot of these companies try to make a convoluted uh, combination therapy so that there's not a good comparator for us to look at. And therefore, they can hold their hat at their very high objective response when really they can't tell us for certain how much their molecule of interest is actually contributing to that uh, objective response rate. So it's still a positive result in general. If it wasn't as high as, say, 64%, you might be a little bit concerned here, given that there is data to say that 
uh, Herceptin combination can go as high as 74%, but you know it still remains to be seen what a head-to-head -head trial is going to look like for ALX148, and that is really going to be the test for this company. When it comes to head and neck squamous cell carcinoma, they're looking at first and second line. And in ALX148 plus Keytruda for second line, they found that Checkpoint inhibitor naive patients saw a 40% objective response, and that's 4 out of 10 patients, whereas patients that were treated with checkpoint inhibitors before had a 0% objective response. And they say in their corporate presentation that this compares to Keytruda alone, which gives a 15% objective response rate. So in general, I think this is a good result. Seeing this effect in checkpoint naive patients is good. It would have been nicer to see it in patients that were treated with checkpoint inhibitors prior, but I think that this is still kind of setting them up for success in head and neck squamous cell carcinoma. For first-line HNSCC, they looked at a big combination group like they did in gastric cancer. They did ALX148 plus Keytruda, 5-fluorouracil plus cisplatin or carboplatin. And with this group, in a small cohort of only four patients, they had a 75% objective response. And in their corporate presentation, they compare this to Keytruda alone, which gave a 17% ORR, or Keytruda plus chemotherapy, which gave a 36% ORR. But this one had a lot of side effects associated with it, so I don't know if it's you know a valid comparison necessarily. But you know, it's nice that they're seeing this kind of response in these combinations, but again, until we see a proper head-to-head -head comparison, it's tough for us to know exactly how much ALX148 is contributing to these effects. Now, one thing I wanted to highlight is I'm not touching at all on the MDS trials that ALXO is doing, but they're looking at doses of up to 60 mg per kg once monthly. And this is a big deal, and I'm going to be paying attention to this because if there are going to be some problems with side effects, I think it's going to probably come out in this trial. So that's something I'm going to look forward to in the next six months or so to see if some safety signals come up. And I haven't talked about this, but we're going to talk about it shortly, actually right now, on the clinical hold that ALXO is on right now. So before we do that, I did just want to mention the upcoming catalysts. So for Trillium, at the end of Q1 of 2021, they're doing an R&D day where they're going to talk about their priorities. And this is critical because we want to know which solid tumors they're going to focus on, as well as which combination therapies they're going to focus on. Because really, for us to get that total potential addressable market in their market cap, we need them to start going in solid tumors and get going quickly, because ALXO is already deep into solid tumors. For ALXO, they have an updated readout for Q4 of this year for their Phase 1 gastric cancer trial with ALX148 plus Herceptin. They're also going to have a readout for head and neck squamous cell carcinoma, their phase one of ALX148 plus Keytruda, and that's going to come out in H1 of 2021. Now, one thing I haven't mentioned up to now is the partial clinical hold on their head and neck squamous cell carcinoma for their phase two trial. And what they say is that this is for a routine non-clinical safety study. And they also say, and I'm quoting here, that this non-clinical study is still required prior to the initiation of a clinical trial that could be considered pivotal. And that means it's a registrational trial. And they also say here, which is kind of confusing to me, that they're allowed to initiate with a 50 patient cap. So are they required to do this study before the initiation of the trial or can they go up to 50 patients? I'm not too sure on that, but they're apparently saying that it's not going to affect their timeline. So they're very confident that this uh, safety study is not going to be a big deal. 
but part of me wonders if it has to do with the safety data related to the monotherapy that I talked about earlier in the presentation. So the FDA wants to see a little bit more safety data before they feel good about giving them the green light, but it seems like ALXO is going to be moving forward and just stop at 50 patient recruitment. But that's something to be mindful for, whether we see that resolution happen in the first half of this year. So what's my overall take here? And really, my first take is that the CD47 space is pretty crowded. There's a lot of different players, and I think it's just kind of a testament to the potential that there is in these molecules. Now, when it comes to the individual companies here, I think ALXO is overstating their effectiveness when it comes to their combination therapies, given that they don't have a head-to-head -head trial. Now, I do think that the mechanism is sound, so I do, I do think that the risk-reward does favor a long position in the stock. At $3 billion, it might be a little bit high, given the data that we have so far, but I'm going to be on the long side if we see some significant dips in the company. I'm especially going to be watching for safety signals related to the 60 mg per kg dose in that MDS trial that I talked about before. So I'm not going to take a position on ALXO. I'm going to just sit on the sidelines and kind of watch and see how that plays out with regards to the clinical hold as well as that MDS trial. Now, one thing I wanted to bring up with regards to ALXO, when I was looking at the 47 corporate presentation with regards to magrolimab, they wrote here that they had a type C meeting with the FDA in May of 2019. And what they described here on their presentation was that FDA feedback indicates potential pathway for single-arm registrational trial of magrolimab and rituximab in heavily pretreated RNR DLBCL patients based on ORR and durability of response. So what this means to me is that you can potentially do a registrational trial and the FDA is potentially willing to accept it if you base the endpoints on objective response and durability of response. So throughout this talk today, I was saying that we want to see head-to-head -head data to really understand if ALX148 is responsible for the effects we're seeing. But what the FDA is saying that potentially, if the objective response rate and the durability of response is high enough, there's a potential pathway for approval in just a single arm trial. So now I'm not too sure. Maybe they don't need to actually do a head-to-head -head trial to get approval in DLBCL, but they're going to have to meet with the FDA to decide. And for me personally, I do think that head-to-head -head trial is going to move forward in some capacity, whether it's in solid tumors or NHL, in order for us to really see that effect. When it comes to Trillium, I think the fact that they've seen monotherapy efficacy is a clear advantage over ALXO, but they might also have to show head-to-head -head data in order to convince us that of the combo efficacy that they see, that it is TTI-621 or TTI-622 that is responsible for that effect that they see in comparison to the combination molecule as a monotherapy. So, the worry that I have with Trillium is how long they're going to take before we can actually start to see that data. And you know, I have here 2022 before pivotal data release. And if you think about solid tumor data, they might do a phase 1B in 2021. And then is it going to take more time before they get to that pivotal trial? I'm not too sure. So for them, it's really going to be about moving quickly. And when it comes to the positions that I have, I've said throughout this whole thing that I plan on holding Trillium until I start to see some solid tumor data. So I am holding a 20% position in Trillium. My cost basis is 541 since I bought in the spring of this year. And, you know, I'm very happy with all the NHL data that I've seen. But since ALXO has had their IPO, 
I think a lot of the tailwinds with them has to do with the fact that they started in solid tumors and they're starting to see this efficacy data come out. So for me, I'm gonna wait with the trillion position that I have until we start to see some solid tumor data. And you know, I was saying mid 2021, it might be later 2021, but we're gonna get a catalyst at the R&D day at the end of the first quarter, and I'm gonna you know, assess from there. For ALXO, I'm gonna anticipate potentially starting a position if we see some more data, or there's another potential big readout coming up. I do have some concerns about the safety, but it could be alleviated if they don't see many safety signals in the 60 mg per kg dose, and if they start to see resolution from that clinical hold from the FDA. So I do think that the theory behind CD47 is sound, and I think that both ALXO and Trillium could coexist in this space. And really that's all I've got for the CD47 space. If you think I'm off on any of this information, please let me know. Leave me a note in the comments below or send me a tweet at Matthew Lepore. And I know this video is a little bit long. There's a lot of like details that come along with this, but it's interesting and the devil is in the details when it comes to trying to really understand if one molecule is going to be better and at what capacity it's going to be better or not. So I want to thank everybody for watching. I'm going to leave it at that. We are middle of the week, so I'm not going to do a portfolio wrap up, but I do want to thank everybody for all your support. Thank you so much for all of the engagement as well. And if you want to donate or help out with the show, check out the Patreon link below. And with that, I'm going to wrap it up, but thanks again, and we'll see you next time.